What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last two weeks, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, and we've seen our first two sections. The first section deals with the slavery of Israel and Egypt, and you know they start coming to Egypt with only 70 people. God multiplies them into quite a large number, and He is fulfilling the promise that He gave to Abraham. But the Egyptians are fearful because they believe, hey, there's so many fighting men here that if an army came against us and the Israelites decided to fight against us, then we'd be in big trouble. And so Pharaoh decides, you know what, we're going to stop this growth. We're going to make them slaves. They're no longer going to have lots of kids and we'll be okay. But as they're in slavery, the Lord continues to multiply and bless them and they have even more kids. And so Pharaoh goes to his second plan and he comes to the midwives and he says, all right, every baby boy that's born, I want you to kill them. But they fear God more than Pharaoh, and they don't do that. And so finally Pharaoh says, all right, plan, you know, the third plan is, hey, anybody who's an Egyptian and finds that there is a boy born to the Hebrews, he's required by law to kill them. And that's where we come to our second section where we have Moses' birth and his first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. And we just saw how God provided and protected uh, baby Moses and then placed him in you know, Pharaoh's palace where he was the son to Pharaoh's daughter and he was raised and you know, all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he's there and he's learning and growing. He becomes mighty in works, mighty in deeds. Uh, but then he gets to a point where he feels that he can you know, deliver the nation of Israel uh, on his own and he kills this Egyptian. He expects the Israelites to say, oh, you've done such a great job. You're our deliverer. And instead, you know, Pharaoh finds out about the fact that he murdered an Egyptian. He runs for his life um, to Midian. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight as we now come to this next section where we have the call of Moses and his second 40 years in Midian. So he spends 40 years in Egypt being trained in the ways and wisdom of the Egyptian. He was mighty in his own flesh, mighty in his own works. God's now going to do quite a bit of change in this next time that he has here in Midian. And so let's see, we won't look at the whole section tonight, uh, but we'll look at part of it. So starting in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says this, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, and said, How is it that you have come so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us in the water of the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave 
Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and he, she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. So now we see, we ended the last section. Pharaoh finds out about Moses' murder, and Moses realizes, okay, I got problems. Pharaoh's wanting to kill me. And so he runs from Egypt all the way to Midian. As you can see from this map, that was quite a long journey. And when he finally gets to Midian, he finds this well. And there's a lot of desert between Egypt and Midian. So a great place to kind of find yourself after this journey. He comes to this well. And as he gets to this well, there are seven girls there. They're all sisters. They're daughters of what we're told is the priest of Midian seeking to get water for the flock of their father. Now, the priest of Midian is most likely a descendant of Abraham's son who was named Midian. You're thinking, I don't remember a son named Midian. Well, that's probably because when we think of Abraham, we only think of the sons that he had through Sarah. Remember, Sarah dies, and Abraham gets remarried to Keturah, and he has children with her. Genesis 25, 1 and 2, we're told, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now, because of this connection with Abraham, many commentators believe that this was actually a true priest in the sense of someone who worshipped the true God because he was a descendant of Abraham who would have passed on these truths um, to them. And so uh, there's a lot to go on with this is actually someone who was a true God-fearer. Um, but we're told that this man, he has seven daughters. They're there at this well. Uh, they're wanting to get water for their father's flocks. And these shepherds who are men come in there and they basically just push these girls away and they're going to go you know, get the water for themselves. And so here's Moses and he stands up for these seven women. He protects them. He runs the shepherds off. And then he waters all the flock himself. So, you know, these seven girls are there to do it. And he's like, no, I, I got this. I'll take care of this. Uh, and so I think it's interesting. We got Moses who he's just come from the palace you know, where he would have been served. He was the prince of Egypt, and he had all these servants, and now he comes, and now he's actually having his first opportunity to really be a servant instead of being served, and he's done a great job here as he first comes to Midian. He takes this opportunity to protect and serve um, these women and their father, and so they run back to dad, and he's like, why are you guys back so soon? It takes you a lot longer normally, you know, to get water, and they say, hey, this Egyptian, he came, and they tell the whole story of how he runs off the shepherds and how he you know gives the water and you know they call him an Egyptian even though he's not an Egyptian why because he looked like one he's the prince of Egypt he dressed like an Egyptian he came there looking that way uh, he's actually a Hebrew but they would have you know been an honest mistake not knowing you know that about him uh, and so father says well well where is he <laughs> why have you run back here and left this guy he did all this for you and you don't even bring him here to meet me Bring him back here. Go get him. Let us come and give him some food and you know, welcome him and thank him for what he does. And so they have this meal together and you know, the father basically offers for Moses to live with the family and Moses takes that offer and says, yes, I'm willing to do that. Obviously now he has no home. He has, you know, he's just on the run and this is just a great place where it's like, I come here and now I'm offered you know, to be able to be a part of this family and... The priest of Midian gives Moses his daughter. Her name was Zipporah. They get married, and they have a baby, and they'll name him Gershom. And Moses says, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, 
and the name means stranger. So, um, you know, he names his son based on kind of the circumstances that he was in. And so now he's kind of settling down. Uh, he's taken a family. And it seems that he's kind of just content with, you know, this new place in which God has him. He's no longer in the palace. He's in the tents. He's in the wilderness. But, um, you know, I think we make a mistake. I think oftentimes people look at this time and it's like, well, this was Moses' waiting time. He had to wait 40 years before God could really do anything with him. We're actually going to see that's not the case of all. This is his working time. You know, he's going to work probably harder than he ever has in his life, and God's going to do a lot in him to change him. That's one of the biggest things we're going to see in this section is the difference between the Moses of the first 40 years versus the Moses of the second 40 years. The Moses who was so prideful and self-reliant and thought he could handle it all to what God changes him to in this next portion of his life. But he had to be taken out of that role as prince of Egypt, out of Egypt itself, out to the wilderness, and he's humbled and changed in this time. And so God is doing this to prepare him for what he ultimately has for Moses, which is, I do want you to be the deliverer. You thought you were 40 years ago, but you weren't ready to be it. Uh, but I'm going to make you ready for it. And it's taken quite a long time with it. So now, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledge them. So now we have something significant transpiring here. The Pharaoh who once Moses dead has now died himself. And you know, we realize you read the story and you're like, okay, Moses just leaves and Pharaoh's dead. No, there's some time that has transpired here. We're going to see as we come to the beginning of chapter 3 that Moses has been in Midian almost for 40 years. So it could be close to that. Uh, and so the Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead, he's now dead. And we're told something about the Israelites because now, you know, they had Moses there and Moses is like, hey, I'm ready to deliver you guys. No, we don't want you as our ruler. We don't want you to do anything for us. So God's not only preparing Moses in this time, He's actually also preparing the nation of Israel as well. And so now they're finally starting to cry out to God. They're miserable. They're in bondage. They hate their lives and what's going on. And so they're crying out to God. And notice what we're told, that the cry came up to God, and that shouldn't be something that surprises us. God hears all the prayers that are offered to Him. Him, but yet we're told God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and acknowledged the Israelites. Now, this is a thing that I want you to recognize here. Why God chooses to say, you know what? I am now going to answer. I'm now going to deliver. I'm now going to move among this nation. It's ultimately because of the covenant that I made with them. The covenant I made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, I promised to make them a great nation. I promised to bring them back to the promised land. And I'm a God who keeps my promises. And I think it's important to realize that, you know, it wasn't that they deserved it. It wasn't that God looked down and said, man, you guys are such a wonderful people. You've done so well. You love me so much. And so now I'm going to do this for you. It's not because they were good, not because they were special, not because they were worthy. Ultimately, God did this because of the covenant he made with them. And I think that's important for us because really our relationship with God is on the same basis. He has this relationship with us because of the covenant we have because of our relationship with Christ. 
So it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we're special. It's not because we've done something to earn what God does for us. He does it because He says, because of what Christ has done, I have now made this covenant with you, and this is why I deliver you from sin. This is why I do these things for you. Well, now we come to chapter 3. We see that there's quite a, a change in the amount of time that has transpired. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, we're told, And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The events that we see here in chapter 3 are right before this, when he comes before Pharaoh. So there's, you know, it could be 39 years, close to 40 years have, have transpired now since the time that Moses has come to Midian. And so he's been there a long time. And he's been ultimately just a shepherd. He's been tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And it's interesting, this Hebrew word for tending means of something that is habitually done. So this speaks of his occupation. And this is what he did every day. This is what he did regularly. So Moses goes from prince who had mighty works, mighty power, as we looked at even Josephus saying that he you know, led armies to conquer different lands, and now he's the shepherd. You know, quite a, a transition in you know, what you do with your life. I mean, here's the prince who has all this power, all this authority, leads soldiers out in the wilderness now just leading sheep. Uh, and so God has kind of taken him into a very different place, doing a lot in this time, though, to help Moses change. In Egypt, Moses lived in the most powerful country. He lived in a palace. Now he lives in an insignificant country in a tent. In Egypt, Moses was served. In Midian, he's a servant. In Egypt, he's educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In Midian, he's educated as a shepherd. In Egypt, he was mighty in word and deed, led armies. In Midian, he's just a lowly shepherd taking care of sheep. In Egypt, he has confidence in himself. He thinks, hey, I'm ready for this. I can deliver the nation of Israel. But now in Midian, he's lost that self-confidence. In Egypt, Moses was a man of great power and authority. In Midian, he's just a lowly man who doesn't even own his own sheep. He's actually taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He doesn't even have his own flock. This is kind of, he's gone from this man of great power who had so much authority to a man who's just out there taking care of someone else's sheep. Now the world would have thought that Moses was ready to deliver the Israelites 40 years ago. He was the, the perfect example. You've been trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. You're a prince. You're powerful. You're mighty in word and deed. You have all this experience. You're ready to be the deliverer. But that's not what God thought. Moses had a lot of things that needed to be changed in him. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yeah, this is something that's so important for us to remember because, you know, we often think as the world thinks. We often think that God should do certain things certain ways because of, you know, someone's ability or because of their background or whatever. And so I'm sure a lot of people would look at Moses and say, yeah, man, here's the guy who's ready to deliver the nation of Israel as a prince with all this education, with all this background. I mean, surely he's the top candidate here. And God says, no. He's not ready at all. Those 40 years have not prepared him for what I have for him. I'm going to have to do a whole another 40 years in Midian to truly get him to where I want him to be. 
God wasn't looking for a deliverer who was educated by the world. He was looking for a deliverer who ultimately he was going to educate. He was going to prepare. He wasn't looking for someone prideful, thought he could do it on his own. He was looking for a man who was humble, recognizing he couldn't do it on his own, that he must depend upon the Lord for that to happen. He was looking for someone who knew how to shepherd. He didn't know that. He was this prince with this authority given to him, but he never really understood how to shepherd people. And as we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to realize how vital that skill is going to be for Moses. John Trapp wrote this, In Egypt, Moses learned how to be somebody. In Midian, he learned how to be nobody. Much he had learned in Egypt, but much more in Midian. You know, the world wants to teach us that we are somebody, that we should be somebody, that we're so significant and we can do all these things on our own. And so often what God has to do is chip away at that. No, actually, you're nobody without me. You can't do anything without me. And so for a lot of our lives, especially if we go for a while before we accept Christ, we kind of just get built up into this thought that we are somebody in and of ourselves, that we can accomplish all this stuff in and of ourselves, and then we want to serve the Lord. Lord, I got this. I can do this. I can handle this. I'm, I'm able in and of myself. And God says, no. I'm going to have to take you out to Midian. I'm going to have to take you out to the wilderness. I'm going to have to do some things in your life to bring you to a place of humility, to bring you to a place of dependence on me instead of dependence on yourself. This is a difficult thing to accept. You know, this is probably one of the hardest things that I have had to really apply. You know, it's one thing to intellectually understand something and, and get to the point where you say, yeah, I, wa- I thought I was somebody, but I'm really not without Christ. You know, now with Christ, I am somebody. I am significant. I am important. I am valuable to the Lord. But without Him, I can do nothing. Without Him, I can accomplish nothing. And, and so to get to that place where to realize I am really nothing on my own. I am nothing without Jesus, and I'm everything with Him It's something that, you know, I've grasped in my mind, but so many times, even to this day, there are times where I just struggle applying that truth, really believing that I, in my own strength, in my own efforts, don't have anything really to offer. I can't do it on my own. I have to be completely dependent on the Lord. He makes me something. It's only when I'm connected to Him that these things can happen. And, you know, it took Moses a long time to get this. Forty years. He's going to be 80 years old before, I mean, sometimes we don't really picture his age. Like when he comes to deliver the nation of Israel, you know, um, you know, if you ever see the old Ten Commandments movie and he's got that, you know, big white beard, well, that would have been realistic. He's an old man, you know, when he does this because it took 40 years really for God to take what he was and turn him into what he needed to be. And so, you know, this is an important lesson for us. Hopefully, maybe it doesn't take us quite as long to go from that self-dependence to God dependence. Well, now as we come to chapter 3, God's going to meet with Moses. He's going to tell him, hey, now it's time. <laughs> 40 years ago, you thought you were the deliverer. Now, 40 years later, I want you to be the deliverer. Verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. 
Then he said, Do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So Moses is tending his father-in-law's flock. He's got this large group of sheep, and he's going around to the back of the desert. And he comes to the place we're called the Mountain of Horeb, uh, which is actually the same mountain, just titled something different later on in Exodus, which is Mount Sinai. Uh, and so he's there at Mount Sinai, and you know he's you know just traveling around the desert here on this mountain, and he sees something very fascinating, something that you wouldn't see every day. This bush is on fire, and that's not what's significant. What's significant is it's not being consumed. You know, it's not burning up. The, the leaves aren't burning up. There's just this fire there, and the bush is just still, you know, all intact in that fire. And so that catches Moses' eye, his attention. But there's more to this bush than the fact that it's just burning and not being consumed. We're told that the angel of the Lord is there. Now, we hear this term, angel of the Lord, and we think of angels, but the term angel just means messenger the messenger of the Lord. And as we've already seen in the book of Genesis, here we see again, which most commentators believe is another appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, that He is there in that burning bush, there speaking and meeting with Moses. And we're here that as Moses is there, this voice calls out, Moses, Moses. But I want you to notice something. We're told that when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look at the bush, that's when God speaks. And I think this is interesting that God waits to get Moses' attention. You know, he's now in, you know, whoa, look at this bush. It's, it's not being consumed. I'm going to go inquire. He's looking at it. And when God has his attention, now he speaks. And I think this is so important for us because so often this is the way that God does this with us, that when He has our attention, He now speaks to us. You know, when He speaks through His Word, when we're actually giving it our attention, you know, we often then find the result of God speaking to us. And this is something that I hear from, oh, I want the Lord to speak to me. And, you know, why doesn't God speak to me? And people get so frustrated with that. And then I'll speak with them of, you know, well, well, how's your time in the Word of God? I don't want to spend time in the Word of God. I just want God to speak to me. And it's like, well, if you want God to speak to you, give attention to His Word. Look to His Word like Moses looked to that bush and expect the Lord to speak to you because as we give attention to Him, He then wants to take advantage of that and actually speak when we're willing to listen. Because so often we're not willing to listen. We're not wanting to listen. And so it's like, why waste His words on us if we're not actually attentively saying, Lord, I want to hear from You. I, I want You to speak to me. And when we're in that place, the Lord will. And I encourage you, I think it's a great thing on a regular basis to get away from distractions, get away from things that are just going to keep your mind focused on other things in the Lord, and just get alone with the Lord, be in His Word, and watch how He speaks when you give Him the attention that He deserves. David Gusick wrote this, The burning bush was a spectacular phenomenon that captured Moses' attention, but it changed nothing until Moses received the Word of God that came to him there. I mean, if all Moses sees is this bush that's burning and not consumed, and that's it. I mean, there's no real significance to this story. Oh, wow, that was nice. Let me go on with my day. 
No, the significance is God was in that bush speaking a message to Moses, and we're going to see the continuation of this message, but this is the real key, the fact that Moses is now having the Lord speak to him. And so right when God gets Moses' attention, notice the first thing he does is just call him by name. And I'm wondering if these 40 years, if Moses kind of thought, you know what, I'm no longer significant. I used to be significant, at least in the world's perspective. I was the prince of Egypt. But now I'm just this lowly shepherd who doesn't even have his own flock out in the middle of nowhere, you know, just traveling around the wilderness. But yet God never forgot him. God knows him by name. God calls him by name. God has a plan and God's been working this whole time. And God says, well, now, Moses, it's time for you to do what you wanted to do 40 years ago. But notice what God says to Moses right after he calls his name. He tells him to do two, two things. First, he ultimately says, keep your distance. Do not draw near to this place. That, that phrase can be more literally translated. Stop coming closer. Moses, stop. Because he's saying, hey, I want to see this up close. Man, this bush that doesn't get consumed, this is crazy. I want to look at this. And as he's coming closer, the Lord tells him to stop. And the reason is because of the second thing. Take your sandals off your feet because you are standing on holy ground. Moses, you need to stop coming closer. You need to recognize who is in front of you, what's going on right now. You're standing on holy ground because in this bush is the holy God and you're coming to stand before Him and you need to realize and recognize your approach. Stop. Take your shoes off. You're standing before the Lord. God wants Moses to recognize the need for reverence, the need for Humility in His presence. Removing sandals is often throughout Scripture something that's connected with humility. You see that even in cultures today of taking sandals off before you come into homes as a a sign of respect. Well, Moses is now in God's presence. And God is saying, hey, humble yourself. Respect me. Reverence me as you stand before me. And I think this is a great example to us. You know we need a good balance. I think for some people, they have this, you know, they swing to this side where it's like, God is so far from me. He wants nothing to do with me. I have no access to him. And they've accepted Christ. Uh, and so that's not true. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. He's our father. You know, we have that intimacy with him. And they're just kind of distant. They don't think God really has any time for them. They don't, you know, you know this, that's their view of him. And so they approach things kind of in that distant way, which is wrong. But then there's others who are just like, oh, yeah, God's my dad. And it's just real flippant. It's irreverent. It's disrespectful. Oftentimes it's even prideful in the approach that we bring. And I think this is a good kind of recognition of, hey, when we stand before the holy God, we need to see who we stand before. You know, he is our father, but that doesn't, you know, bring us to a place where we now just say, well, kind of, we can just flippantly come with, without a recognition of who he is. And I think there's a good balance of seeing, hey, I have complete access But as I come, I want to come in humility. I want to come in reverence. I want to come with respect of the one that is the creator of heaven and earth. So after God tells Moses to do these two things, he's going to reveal to Moses himself in in four quite unique and and great ways just to kind of remind Moses of who he is in verses 6-9. through It says this, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So here we have several things that God says about himself that I think is just great to note and would have been you know, important for Moses to understand. The first thing that God reveals himself to Moses is the God who keeps his covenants. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is what he reminds Moses of. Hey, I am the God who made that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I haven't forgotten my people. I haven't forgotten what I said that I would do. I said that I would make them a mighty nation, and I have, but I also said that I would take them back out of Egypt to the promised land, and I'm going to fulfill that. And so right away, he's bringing to Moses' attention that, hey, you know what, I haven't forgotten this. And you can see why Moses might think that and why these Israelites might think that, because it's been a long time. We're going to see that they're in bondage there in the nation of Israel. At least they've been there for 400 years, and we don't know quite how much of that time has been in slavery, but they might think, man, it's been so long. Is God ever going to fulfill His promise of bringing us back to the promised land? And and things have gone from good as we were in the land of Goshen, and everything was great when Joseph was alive, and now they've gotten really bad, and now we're slaves. And you can understand why people might think, has God forgotten? Has He forgotten the promise? Has He forgotten what He said to us? But God wants to remind Joseph and Moses, that is not the case. But you know what? I think it's interesting as Moses hears who he's speaking to. We're told that he hides his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He's now recognizing who is standing before him in this, well, flame of fire there in that bush. And I think this is very interesting that Moses now comes with this recognition of his sin and this humility. Whoa, I'm standing before God. I'm hiding my face. I'm fearful. Because Moses now has a a real understanding of himself that I don't think he really had 40 years ago. 40 years ago, he was self-reliant. 40 years, he was self-confident. 40 years, I'm the man. I'm going to do all this. And now he's in a place where he's humble. Now he's in a place where he realizes, I ran from Egypt because I'm a murderer. He's starting, I'm sure, these 40 years, you know, he's been kind of recognizing his own failures and limitations and struggles, and he's now got to a point where when he meets with the Lord, it's not, here I am, God, come use me, I'm ready, I'm so great and wonderful, I'm glad you finally recognized it. No, he's in a place where he turns his face away. He recognizes his own sin, and he's in a very different place than he was, the place that God wants him to be. The second way that God reveals Himself to Moses is that the God who sees. He says, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. You know, this is something that sometimes we struggle with, and I'm sure they struggle with it as well. Does God even see what's happening here? I mean, look at what we're dealing with. Look at what we're going through. I mean, did you realize how bad it's gotten for us? Is He not watching what's happening? And we sometimes conclude, since He hasn't moved in the way that we think He should since He hasn't delivered us in the timing that we think He should, since He hasn't done what we feel He should. He must not be watching. 
He must not see what's going on because surely if he saw it, he would do things the way that I think he should. But we need to realize that God always sees. He never turns a blind eye to our struggles. He never is not watching what is happening. But yet, he moves in different timing than we do. He does things in different ways than we do. And another thing that we need to realize is we can't hide anything from him. We saw that with Moses when he killed the, uh, killed the Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. He's looking left and right, hoping that nobody sees. God saw. God was aware of what Moses did. He's the God who sees everything. The third way that God reveals Himself to Moses is the God who hears. He says, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Not only is God able to see what's going on, He also hears those who are crying out to Him, saying, Lord, what's going on? Look at what's happening. Help us. We need You. These people are beating us. They've enslaved us. We no longer want to be in this position, in this place. And the Lord has heard the cry of His people. And now... He is moving to answer them. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now that's a wonderful verse with a wonderful promise, but the one thing that it doesn't say that's a reality for us is, when does He deliver us from our troubles? We get into trouble and we want, I want out right now. I don't want to be here one more second, one more hour, one more day. And so if God's not delivering me immediately, then this must not be true. He must not hear me. He must not be the God who actually delivers those who call on Him. He must not be the God who answers prayer. Well, no. His timing's different. Just because I pray something and it's not answered right away, it doesn't mean that God hasn't heard, and it doesn't mean that God's not going to answer. It just means that I need to be patient and wait for the timing that God sees as best in order to answer that request. The fourth way that God reveals Himself to Moses is the God who delivers. He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the God who delivers. But what I love about this is it's not just a deliverance from their horrible bondage in Egypt. It's also a deliverance to something wonderful, the promised land. So I'm going to deliver you from what's bad, and I'm going to deliver you to something that is wonderful and amazing. And what I love about that is that is something that we have with Jesus. Because we put our faith in Jesus, God delivered us from what was bad, death, to something wonderful, life. Delivered us from sin to salvation. From hell to heaven. We have this deliverance from where we were or where we were headed to something wonderful because of what God did on the cross for us. And notice that God tells Moses, I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. I love that terminology and that thought of I'm coming down because that's exactly what he did. We're about to celebrate that in a couple weeks. The incarnation, God coming down from his throne to be a baby, to live as a man, to give his life on the cross. He literally came down in order to deliver you and I from sin and from death and from hell. So he's helping Moses to see, hey, I see, I hear, I deliver that's the kind of God that I am. And now I want you to notice the method that God chooses to use to bring this deliverance to pass. I'm going to deliver the nation of Israel, but notice how He's going to do it. Verse 10. 
Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to deliver them. It's ultimately going to be me who does it. But Moses, I've chosen you to help in the process. I'm going to use you to ultimately make this happen. You're going to be my voice to Pharaoh. You're going to be the one that I move through miraculously. I'm going to use you in this deliverance process. Now, God could have delivered the Israelites in many different ways. He could have just, you know, wiped all the Egyptians out if he wanted to, and they could have just walked out of the land. He could have brought angels. He could have used all sorts of different ways to bring deliverance, but yet he chooses to use a man. And this is something we see throughout Scripture, and sometimes you kind of think, Lord, why do you use that person? I mean, come on. But yet God says, no, that's the way I want to work. I don't just want to save you. I want to use you. I want to work with you. I want to use you for my work and my glory. We see this with Moses, and the same is true with us, but we need to realize before God could use Moses in this great way, he's got 40 years in Midian of changing him in order to be able to use him in the way that God wanted to. So God desires to use us, but before he can use us, he's got to work in us and through us to change us so that he can use us in the way that he desires. So God's telling Moses, I'm going to use you. And as he comes to us, I'm going to use you. We think, well, how should we respond? Let's see how Moses responds to, I'm not only going to use you, I'm going to use you in this huge way. You are now actually going to deliver the nation of Israel. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Notice Moses' response. Hey, I'm going to use you, Moses, to deliver the nation of Israel. And I want you to think about 40 years ago when Moses kind of came himself that title. I'm the deliverer, the self-proclaimed, let me do it. I'm, I'm ready, I'm able, I got all this training, I'm a man of mighty deeds, I'm ready to go. If God would have said to him, you're going to be the deliverer 40 years ago, I'm sure he would have said, that's right, I am. I got this, Lord, I'm ready for this. He had so much self-confidence in his own power and his own ability and his own, you know, whatever. Now he's come to a very different place. Who am I? that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Who am I? He's the man who said, I'm the deliverer 40 years ago, and now who am I that I should do this? I'm nothing. That's where I want you to be, Moses. You thought you were something before, and I couldn't use you that way then. Now you've come to this place where you realize, hey, yeah, who are you? You, you, you are this lowly shepherd now, and I brought you to this place to humble you and to help you get to a place where you will say, I can't do this on my own. I, I'm incapable of this without you, Lord, and that's where God wants Moses to be. He's brought this great transformation where he's no longer confident in himself. He's no longer confident in his ability. He now recognizes his weaknesses. He recognizes the struggles he has. He's been stripped of his pride. He's been stripped of his self-reliance. And he's in that place where he's ready to be used by God because he'll trust in the Lord. Now, I think it's interesting that God doesn't answer Moses' question. Who am I? 
well, Moses, let me build you up here. You know, your, your self-esteem is pretty low, and I want to tell you who you really are and encourage you about who you really are. God doesn't even actually address the question, who am I? Because that's not the most important question. I'm calling you to deliver the nation of Israel. Who am I to do that? Well, let me tell you what the real question should be and what you really should be focused on. It's not who you are, it's who's with you. That's what's important. So let me tell you that. And so notice that God says, I'll certainly be with you. I'm not even going to answer the question, who are you? Because that's kind of irrelevant because I'm with you. So that's all that matters. No matter how insignificant you are, I'm so significant that we can do great things. No matter how powerless you are, I'm so powerful that we'll accomplish amazing things. So it's not about who you are. It's a matter of who is with you that really matters. And so God wants to take Moses' focus off of himself and put it on where it should be, on God. Hey, I'm with you, and that is why this is going to succeed. That's why you're going to be able to do what I'm telling you to do. And I think this is so important for us as well. It's not about who we are. It's about who's with us. And as God calls us to do things, and as God says, hey, I've given you this big task. I can imagine the disciples of the you know, final thing that Jesus gives is this great commission, go all the world and preach the gospel, the one that we have as well. Who am I? to be able to accomplish something so grand and big and difficult. I mean, I just denied you, Peter could say. I mean, we've all abandoned you recently. Who are we to do this? Well, if it was just about you, yeah, who are you? You wouldn't be able to, just like for us. But it's not about that. Notice the next thing that Jesus says, Lo, I'll be with you always. It's not about you. It's about who's with you. It's about who's going to empower you. Go wait for the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, it's God who's ultimately with us, working through us, that should be the thing that we're focused on, not our limitations, our issues, because we all have them. But God's not limited. He doesn't have issues. He can work through us, like He does with all these different flawed people in Scripture. So God has brought Moses to a great place place of humility, a place of lack of self-reliance, a place where he finally says, who am I, Lord, only if you're with me is any of this going to happen. But you know, now any objections or excuses that Moses has are really just a matter of a lack of faith. Once God has brought him to the point of like, Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. And we're going to see as we go on in chapter 4 that Moses throws out a few more excuses of why he shouldn't be the one to do this. And God just helps him to see you missed the point, Moses. It's not about you and your limitations. It's about me. You know, I'm the one who's capable of doing this. And so it goes from a recognition of his, his humility and his, you know, the lack of ability. But when God says, hey, don't you worry about that. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take care of it. It's all about me. If we keep pushing, well, well Lord, I can't, I can't. Yeah, you can't, but you can with me. Then it's just a matter of a lack of faith. And we need us to trust the Lord that he can do through us the amazing things that he says. God goes on to say, And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This must be a fascinating thought to him. If he's out there away from the nation of Israel for 40 years, he's you know with these sheep probably on this mountain all the time, and God says, You know what, Moses? I'm actually going to lead. You're going to lead that whole millions of people from Egypt, and you're actually all going to come back to this mountain. And what an amazing thing that would be. And I'm sure he never thought that that was something that would tra transpire. David Guzik wrote this. 
The sign that God had truly sent Moses may not have been the coming to Mount Sinai, which did not happen for many, many months. The sign probably refers backwards to the sign of the burning bush and the encounter with God there. So now let's see how Moses continues to respond to God. And as we look at this, I want you to think of how you respond or how you might respond when the Lord you know, specifically says, hey, I want you to do this. And as you continue to look in the Word, there's so many things where God calls us to do things. And how do we respond when we're clear that the Lord's saying, hey, go and do this great thing for me, and I'm going to be with you. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Moses asks an important question. All right, if I go to the nation of Israel like you're telling me, they're going to ask me a question. Who sent you? What's the name of the one who sent you? And this is an important thing because you see throughout the book of Genesis, God is called by different names, the patriarchs, different times. And so this would have been a significant one. What has God called himself? Who is the one who has sent you to us, Moses? And so Moses recognizes that's going to happen. But I think it's also important to note that he senses his need for credentials before the people of Israel, for the uh, for order for them to listen to him. Lord, if I don't have the right credentials, if I, don't, if I can't tell them who's sending me, they're not going to heed anything that I say. And I think that's interesting because 40 years ago, he thought he had all the right credentials. Hey, I'm the prince of Egypt, man. I'm now, I'm one of you guys and uh, I'm going to speak and you guys are going to listen, but they didn't listen. When he thought he had the credentials, they shut him out. And now he doesn't think he has any credentials, so surely they're not going to listen to me now. So, Lord, you got to give me the name that you want me to refer to you as in order for the nation of Israel to believe me. So God says, tell them I am who I am. I am has sent you. Now, this is a really interesting phrase. It's a really great thing. You look in the Hebrew, and it reveals several things about God. One is that he has no equal. I mean, you kind of think it's kind of an interesting phrase. I am who I am. That doesn't really help me so much. But, you know, it speaks of he has no equal. F.B. Meyer wrote this. There is no equivalent for God but God. If you place God on the one side of your symbol of uh, equation, there is nothing to put on the other but himself. We have nothing else but God. I I am what I am. I am who I am. You know, the closest equivalent we might say is God is love. But that's not exactly an equivalent because you can't turn it around and say love is God because God's greater than love. And so, you know, he is who he is. So the first aspect is of this I am who I am as the idea of God as no equal. Second is the idea that God simply is. I am. I've always existed. You know, there's never been a time that I haven't been and there will never be a time that I'm not. I just am. I'm, I'm always there. Third, I am whom I am has the idea that God is completely independent, that he relies on nothing for life or existence outside of himself. Fourth, I am who I am has the idea of of God is the becoming one. That ultimately God becomes whatever is lacking in us. I am what you need. Fill in the blank. When we're in darkness, Jesus says, I am the light. 
When we're hungry, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. When we're defenseless, He says, I'm the good shepherd. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses this term. You know, He called Himself the Son of Man. He called Himself different things. But one of the things He said about Himself was, I am, several times in the book of John. And the religious leaders caught on to that really quick. Because they realized anybody who's claiming that is claiming the same title of the God of Exodus. And so they realized that Jesus is saying, I am God. And that's one of the reasons that they claimed you know, he's blaspheming and we need to kill him. That They realized what that meant and it infuriated them. But Jesus uses his title throughout his time here on this earth because he is God. And this was a wonderful title for him. Now it's interesting that because the Jews revered this name so much, they didn't feel that they had the privilege to write it all out. Like, uh, we're not worthy. So they would only write the consonants and not the vowels. They wouldn't write the whole name of God here. And so we have the consonants. It's Y-H-W-H. And most scholars believe that it would have pronounced Yahweh as you add the, the vowels in that. But it's interesting. This isn't a, a new name. So it's like, well, what name am I going to give to the people that they know who sent me? Jesus, God doesn't say, well, let me give you a brand new name so they have no clue. No, he gives them Yahweh. And this Hebrew word, we see it all over the book of Genesis. And even Moses' mother, Jacobed, means Yahweh is my glory. So, you know, this is something that they were familiar with. And so, hey, you want them to know who I am? Here's a term that they would be ready and to understand who is the one who sent you. Now, God not only tells Moses what to say to the Israelites when they ask about him, he also gives them a few more good pieces of information in verses 15 through 18. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, your God, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So basically God is telling Moses in this whole section to sum it all up. Hey, you're going to come to the elders of the people of Israel, and you're going to tell them, God is bringing us finally out of Egypt back to the promised land. That's what He promised you know, when you know, our father Jacob came, he told him, don't worry, I'm going to bring your descendants back out. Well, God is ready to fulfill that promise. But he also tells Moses something very important. They're going to listen to you. And this would have been a great promise because I'm sure he thought, they're not listening to me. I'm going to get there and I'm going to say all this. And this like they rejected me 40 years ago. They're going to reject me again. They're not going to listen. And God says, nope, Moses, they're going to listen to this. They're going to heed what you say. So God tells Moses how it's going to go with the Israelites, but really the more important group is not the Israelites. You would expect them to be excited about this message. God's going to deliver us. Oh, man, that's so horrible. No, they would be excited. Finally, we've been praying and crying out. It's about time, Lord. That's not the people you should be worried about. There's a group of people that might really have a problem with the Israelites leaving. 
you know, the ones who are, you know, having them as slaves, who have all this stuff built on their backs, the Egyptians would be the ones that you'd say, well, I can understand the Israelites saying, yes, they're going to want to leave and they're excited about this, but how are the Egyptians going to respond? And so God tells Moses how they're going to respond as well. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he'll let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So hey, the the Israelites, when you come, they're going to listen. They're going to be excited. They're going to actually believe that I'm going to deliver them. The Egyptians, not so much. You're going to come to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him that you know, God says, let the people go. And he's going to say, no, he's not going to do it. And even though I'm going to do lots of amazing miracles, he's still going to say no. But I am going to do so many things that just come against Egypt that he's finally going to get to a place where he says, okay, you can go. But not only am I going to move in Pharaoh, I'm also going to move in all the Egyptians that they will give you silver and gold and then all sorts of things so that when you leave, you can have those things in your departure. Now, I think it's interesting. Some people look at this, well, you know, well, God's stealing from the Egyptians and this is extortion. Well, actually, no, it's not. This is a payment. They have been slaves and they haven't been paid. And this is interesting because in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, God says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, Then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. So even God in his mind said, if you had someone who is your slave, after six years you got to let him go, but you don't let him go empty-handed. you got to give them all these different things. Well, guess what? The Egyptians have had the Israelites enslaved for a long time, and they haven't given them anything. God says, well, it's going to be time to pay up, and I'm going to make it so that they do, so that all this work that you've done, you're not going to leave empty-handed. I'm going to make sure that you and your kids have silver and gold and clothing and things for your future, and this is something that God is going to do to bless them. So in this section here, we see something really amazing in Moses. He's really the thing that I want us to focus on because there's such a drastic difference between his first 40 years and his second in the sense of how he viewed himself, what he sought to do. And it's just amazing to see the man who was so self-reliant, who thought, I'm ready to deliver, tries and fails. And now God works in him for 40 years, and it's like, now it's time. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not the one. I, I, how am I going to do this? God's like, perfect. You're finally at a place where you will depend on me, and now I'm going to be able to use you in the way that I want. You know, and this is the way that God works in us. You know, we want to be used greatly by the Lord. It's like, okay, fine. I want to do great things through you, but before that, i got to have to work. I'm going to have to work and I'm going to remove this pride, the self-reliance, these other things in your life that are hindering you 
from what I can do. Because until that goes, you'll never really depend on me. Until that goes, you'll never really trust me. Until that goes, you won't rely on my power. You rely on yours, and you're never going to be able to do the things I want you to do if that's the case. And so God will take us to those Midians, to those wilderness experiences. And we don't like them. They're not always pleasant. And we're humbled. I've gone from prince to shepherd. But it's so vital for those things to happen because God says in this humility and this change that I'm working in you is going to come an ability now for me to use you in ways that you never thought possible. And we see this throughout Scripture of people who are prideful like a Saul who turns into a Paul or a Peter who says, if all of these deny you, I won't. It took that place of denying him and humility and brokenness before Peter finally realizes, you're right. In and of myself, I can't do it. In and of myself, I am weak. I need the power of the Spirit of God to do what God's called me to do. But yet when he relies on that, he won't stand up in front of a servant girl and then after the power of the Lord and his recognition that he needs the Lord, he stands up in front of thousands of people, preaches the gospel, 3,000 people get saved. We see what God can do when we're willing to not rely on ourselves, to recognize our own failures and weaknesses and trust and depend on Him. And so I think Moses' life is a good encouragement because all of us are in this boat. We're all those who come from a place of pride and arrogance and self-reliance and think we're better than we are and what God has to bring us to a place of realization of, no, <laughs> you're not so good. Actually, you're wretched and wicked, and, and I need to bring you to an understanding of that. But with me, you can do all things if you'll trust me and rely on me and de depend on me.